News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the nonprofit newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, an editor at the city and columnist at the Daily News, here on Wednesday morning with Fordham political science professor Christina Greer and Katie Onan, a reporter at the city. Hello. Hey, everyone. So in a bit, we're going to be joined by our city colleague, Greg Smith, to discuss his exclusive reporting over the holiday weekend and since about the test showing arsenic in the water at Nudge's Jacob Reese houses and delving into why tenants and Mayor Adams didn't learn about those results for days, if not longer. And also why agencies were testing for the heavy metal in the first place. But first, here's just some of the news from a jam-packed final week of summer. The Caribbean Day Parade returned on Monday after two years lost to COVID, and 2022's festivities were largely missing the uh, violence that had marred previous year's early morning uh, Juve celebrations. Mayor Adams credited a special collaboration between the NYPD, city agencies, local clergy, and violence interrupters, and a much lighter policing touch for things like loud parties and double parked cars for making this year's parade one of the safest on records. That caps in August, where the number of murders fell by more than 50% compared to August of 2021, bringing the city back in line with pre-pandemic numbers, at least for the month. That, in turn, culminated a summer where the number of murders and shootings dropped dramatically compared to last year, even as almost every other crime category was up steeply, continuing a disturbing two-year climb in those numbers that helped elect Adams in the first place, on a promise to fairly restore public safety. School is back on Thursday and snow days are out with Zoom days replacing them as needed, according to Chancellor David Banks, since the city needs to meet the state's mandate of at least 180 school days a year. Banks announced that change just after an overwhelming majority of the city council passed a non-binding resolution demanding the restoration of city funds that were cut along with enrollment in the budget that they voted for earlier this summer but have since objected to, claiming the Adams administration misled them on the size and the impact of those cuts. Warnings about flooding and riptides amid the hard rain at the end of the holiday weekend came just after the city for the first time put a price tag of $14 billion on making basement apartments, mostly in Queens, safe and legal. Um, That's a reminder that in the absence of other affordable housing options, families living in basements, really don't have alternatives. Uh, And it came as a new Citizens Budget uh, Commission report put the, uh, quote, tax on constructing new housing, given New York's smothering rules on new developments, at some $67,000 for each new apartment. This in a brutally expensive city that urgently needs hundreds of thousands of more apartments. Finally, Tuesday night, uh, Yulin Nu and the Working Families Party, up against the filing deadline, reluctantly abandoned their idea of running a third-party general election challenge on the Working Families Party line against Daniel Goldman, uh, the counsel of Trump's first impeachment, and the heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, who spent more than $4 million of his own money to get 16,000 votes and barely win a woolly, wide-open Democratic primary in NY10 by just over 1,000 votes and one percentage point over noon. Her decision, announced in a seven-minute video posted on Twitter Tuesday night, averts a fight between Democrats, in effect, that the National Party was really eager to avoid, 
lest it drain attention and resources from other races as the party fights to maintain control of Congress. So, Chrissy, you've talked before, last week even, about how messy, in your words, Yulon's appeal seemed to be, and about your dislike of the Working Families Party and what it became over the Cuomo years. So let me ask, what do you make now of the candidate and the party's decision to step aside here? Was this a brave move, given like their supporters' passion and desire for a run, or just a concession to electoral realities, and how tough it would have been to, to actually win and do anything useful against a Democratic nominee in November? Yeah, Harry, I think the new leadership in the Working Families Party is actually quite strategic, you know, and I think we will see an emergence um, of some some interesting ideas in the future. You know, I had some issues with the old leadership, but here we are. Um, but I do think that, you know, going up against a millionaire who already spent four million plus of his own money in the primary, who obviously, you know, is on the Democratic Party line, I think Dan Goldman would have spent a lot more of his own money to make sure he secured that win. So I think it's smart of the Working Families Party to recognize he's got the Democratic Party line, he got the votes, we will focus our energies and efforts either for the next round, don't forget congressional elections are every two years, not four, or will we focus on sort of the upcoming citywide races? And you know there is a lot of uh, energy behind the new campaign. Um, I think there's a lot of energy behind new just as an individual. So she could look at, you know, we mentioned city council races uh, that are upcoming, or, you know, will it be sort of like that Wrangle Espayat showdown that we kept seeing three years in a <laughs> row? Um, you know, will it always be a Goldman new, you know, um, battle of the forces in Brooklyn slash Manhattan for the next few years as the Working Families Party tries to create a foundation, especially in that district, that will, you know, be the canary in the mine for the rest of the city. And shout out there to uh, Max Rose and Nicole Maliotakis in neighboring mm -hmm. NY11 uh, as they face off yet again. Uh, the new maps are a big advantage for Maliotakis. Rose has said he will not take the WFP line in this uh, November competitive district uh, as he's trying to present himself as a uh, centrist Democrat. And uh, arguably the party could help there. Arguably it's, it's, it's in everyone's interest for them to uh, stay out. But in any case, it's, it's an uphill climb for Rose, just given how the district has been reshaped, but they go at it every two years, it seems. Right. And we also have to recognize that every district has its own kind of ecosystem. And so this redrawing of the districts is more than just, Drawing, redrawing of lines, and you know, I don't think that the Working Families Party uh, ethos is necessarily what the what the district that Rose represents or will you know hopes to represent. I don't really think that that's that kind of left leaning politics is really there. You know, in in enough numbers where it benefits him to to jump on that line. Yep, and he, he trumped a, uh, a a war veteran socialist challenger in the yeah. primary, which is a good indicator of that. Uh, Katie, over to Queens for a minute. Not sure. not to pigeonhole you, but no, it's okay. <laughs> is anything happening with uh with, with basement apartments with uh with with safety? We have this new price tag. The city's finally put on those. Uh, we did have like flood and riptide warnings this weekend. Or is this something that's just going to sort of be be a background story until it's a disaster and then then repeat, 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 which is unfortunately sort of how it's seeming to me, which is good news for 
reporting in a dark sense, but like bad news for uh, getting out of getting out of this mess, which which I, I suppose is just tied to how expensive housing in the city continues to be. Yeah, uh, the the putting a price tag on it, that's about as far as we've gotten in terms of um, what to do about people who who live in basement apartments that can flood in a situation like we had last year with Ida. Um, we've been blessed, and I'm, I'm knocking on wood, uh, this season to not have what we've seen in previous years, whether it just be super heavy rainfall that results in flooding, inland flooding that we saw during Ida. Um Thank we thank God been blessed <laughs> blessed to not have a hurricane. Um, so, but there's still plenty of time left for that. But I think there's nothing really tangible about what's going on. It's very expensive to to what like legalize basement apartments. But even if you legalize a basement apartment, it will still have the potential to flood. And I had to, and I felt very snarky. And I try to, I usually try to avoid this now. Now that I'm an older um, person who's trying to be more mature. But you know, OEM had a tweet yesterday. That said, uh, I'm, I'm just finding it because I uh, was really rude about it on Twitter. But this this tweet of we're supposed to get rain, um, head to higher ground if you're in a basement apartment. And I'm thinking, OK, where? Right. It, pre- it, it makes this presumption that everyone living in basement apartments can go upstairs, can just pack up all their stuff and their families and what knock on their first or second floor tenant uh, neighbor and just say, hey, can we just spend spend the day with you guys? It's it's really unrealistic. And with our um, furniture. Yeah, with our furniture and our stuff. If you don't mind, I hope you don't mind. You know, years ago when I covered only Queens, you would get the Department of Buildings inspectors to come in and talk about these illegal conversions. And it's a real problem in Queens as compared to other boroughs. I think at the time, the majority of their enforcement was in Queens because a lot of times you have illegal apartments and homes. You have multiple people living in what what is technically a single family home, multiple families, chopped up apartments, not just in the basement, all throughout the home, but of course in the basement, because that's a lot of homes have basements. So that's a huge problem. I don't know what the city can do about it realistically. Even on the anniversary of Ida, you know, what real tangible things have been done to protect people. Sure, there there's long-term sewer projects getting made, but that takes years um, you know, I also laugh when the DEP says like, clean your catch basin before the storm. I don't know. Isn't that your job? <laughs> like, how am I going <laughs> to clean a catch basin? I don't have, you know, should I take my whatever? Um, that's, it's a problem, right? We have a housing, an affordable housing, huge issue in the city. Um, there are parts of the city that, that, that are prone to flooding. You know, we knew last year the the neighborhoods hit by hurricane Ida the inland communities, the city knew that that they were prone to that. So I don't know what the answer is. Well, Katie, I just want to say, like, um, your tweet, I thought, was really important. And it, it sort of, like, doubled down on the fact that, like, why it's so important to have just all different types of diversity in the newsroom, just because so many people would read that initial tweet, like, oh, you know, go to higher ground, as if. You know, I mean, there's right. so many folks that I think I think there are a lot of New Yorkers, honestly, who don't understand that if you live in a basement apartment, especially if you live in an illegal basement apartment, you actually don't necessarily have the option to just go upstairs and like, yeah. you know, protect not just protect your stuff, but protect your life. Because we saw that we we lost people uh, last sort of flood. I guess it's called flood season now. I mean, I don't even know what yeah. the season is called because it's so consistent and it happens. And we now know it. I mean, I think we have this confluence of issues that is really worrisome to me because it's the apartment crisis 
that's going on with a lot of lower middle class, middle class, I would argue upper middle class, and then just poor people not being able to find affordable housing. We have storm season that's now consistent and it's going to get longer and more severe every year. And then we have a city that seems a little, I don't know if if they're just aloof or they don't fully understand the severity. And there seems to be a lack of planning going on. We know storms are coming. So should there be, should there have been cleaned basins, uh, you know, earlier this summer? Or, you know, what's the contingency plan for something that we know, like we literally know a storm is coming. So what is the plan? If, if the city is aloof, the, the, the price tag is so high, yeah. which I think it is for a lot of this. For instance, there, there's no chance we're going to increase the sewers capacity, but we now consistently get rainfall that like overwhelms what, what, what they can hold. Right. And, and that, again, is a billions of dollars price tag. Uh, then, then you have to ask, what, what, what are the short term immediate mitigations that you're investing in and working on to buy time? And, you know, when, when, when the mayor and the governor had their, their, their Ida anniversary press conference, it was all here are the long term things we're working on. This isn't something we're going to fix in a year. And that's true. But what are you doing over the next year? Uh, you know, and I, I don't see very much. See, yeah, what I, mean, I really what, need is like some long-term planning. Like, and I, right. I know that that's like, that's difficult and it's the mayor, the governor and the federal government. But, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this on such an early morning, but like with someone like Mike Bloomberg, who did long-term vision planning for protecting our water, our waterways and our pipes. Like I need Eric Adams at all to have a grander vision and try and figure out how to work with individuals to actually secure our sewers, which will make people safer. Sorry, Katie, go ahead. No, you're fine. And just one other thing, you know, I think looking back at Ida and I talked to neighbors of people who unfortunately died in their basement apartments, it was not that I don't want to, I don't want the other tenants to come off as I don't want, I'm not implying that they're cruel and wouldn't help people, obviously. But I think the other issue is the water sometimes can flood so quickly. What I saw at least um, a family that died in Woodside, their apartment flooded so fast, you actually get stuck down there, right? It, it creates... Yeah. I'm I'm not a scientist, but it kind of creates like it it lock sometimes the locks. Um, it's just difficult to open a door. You know, there was a yeah, video mm-hmm. of a home in New Jersey last year after during Ida. You really saw how fast it was. This guy's in his basement or his garage, and then all of a sudden, so much water rushes in it, it, it goes to the top. So that's the other issue too. The long term planning, I think would realistically involve saying no one can live in basements, which is why they're illegal in the first place, because these places are prone to flooding. So let's create other affordable housing for them. But that's unfortunately a much bigger task than than one will do. So there's obviously much more to discuss here. And uh, Chrissy, we're going to have to return soon to whether or not Eric Adams is uh, being mayor or playing mayor, as you asked last week, uh, as he does have some good news to point to on this crime front, at least, or parts of it, murders and shootings, at the uh, end of the summer. But before we get to that, Greg Smith really broke open NYCHA's lead paint cover-up, speaking of long-term problems and a failure of planning that just lagged and lagged and lagged um, over many years. And when he was at the Daily News, he's now at the city. And uh, he interrupted his holiday weekend and mine to break this news, which gets confusing, but is important about tests showing arsenic 
in the water, which is really potent and dangerous with immediate exposure and with sustained exposure at the Jacob Reese houses in Manhattan. Um, as he's reported this out, the city's own timeline has become more and more confusing. Uh, the mayor says he wasn't informed until Friday uh, after Greg had started reporting on this. Uh, and that's when tenants were informed that same day. NYCHA certainly knew about test results earlier in the week and perhaps sooner than that. And I'm hoping Greg can take us through his reporting and a series of stories up until this point clarify what's happening, what it might mean for tenants, and what the open questions are looking at this uh, going, going forward. As the city now says, the new tests show the water is safe, but tenants there should still use the bottled water the city is bringing in for uh, drinking and cooking, although they can bathe. Hi, Greg. Thanks for joining us again. And uh, Please help make sense of this for, for for listeners who maybe were having a holiday weekend and just picking up bits and pieces here. Happy to help out. Happy to try to uh, make what is uh, inevitably uh, confusing a little bit easier to understand. One of the reasons it's confusing, just to be clear, though, is that we're not getting a whole lot of transparency here. Um, what we're getting is uh, shifting explanations. Basically. So uh, the, the bottom line with this is that it's not um, completely clear about who knew what and when they knew it. And that's the thing that I'm uh, mostly focusing on. So what happens is last Friday, just as the Labor Day weekend is about to kick off, uh, I get some uh, communications uh, from two different people that don't know each other telling me that they found um, arsenic in the water at the Reese houses. And that's, that's all I, I was told. And so I started to ask questions probably about seven, not quite seven o'clock on Friday night, which is not a good time to start poking around about news. I mean, that, that one of the reasons that everybody knows about the Friday night news dump, where you, if you want to like get something out there when, and claim that you're transparent, but the thing that you got to get out is unpleasant then you dump it on Friday night so that nobody sees it. So on a holiday weekend. Exactly. It was even worse because it's, you know, you got three days and nobody's around. Everybody's already gone. Uh, so at any rate, we, uh, I start poking around and I call some other people I know who are tied into the housing authority who also were surprised to hear this. And at ultimately, and I first approached the NYCHA uh, spokespeople. That I got no response from them. And then at some point, I just said, I need to know what's going on here. And then all of a sudden, City Hall put out a, a notice saying that Eric Adams was headed to the Jacob Reese houses to distribute bottled water. The notice says nothing about arsenic, just that he's going to distribute water. So now we're at the point where I'm reaching out to City Hall and they're saying, okay, and they're finally confirming, yes. Uh, we've there's tests that have detected the presence of arsenic in the tap water at Jacob Reese houses, and we're all over this. And in the, in the mo at the moment, we're advising uh, residents not to drink the water or cook with it. They can bathe with it, but they can't uh, drink it or cook with it. So that's what happens on Friday night. What I was told was that the 
Housing Authority was aware that this was an issue uh, for two weeks and that they had been dealing with it in different ways. Uh, what I have subsequently figured out, and again, based on only on the records or the people that I could get to confirm, because we don't have the records, because City Hall will not release the records, um, that they started, they did a, uh, in the early August, they were looking into the problem of cloudy water at the uh, development, and they did some tests. And the tests didn't show arsenic, but it also didn't rule out arsenic because it didn't test for arsenic. It, it ruled out other things that really are tangential and have nothing to do with what likely is going on over there. But then at some point they decided, well, maybe we need to look for more than just this. And they included uh, a, a look for metals and that would include or, or different toxins, including arsenic. So they now start looking at that. And that's probably at least a week, but definitely I mean, definitely a week, but probably at least two weeks ago. And they're, they're looking into this. And at some point, they t send, um, they, they have a vendor that goes to the, the development and takes samples. This is what we wrote about uh, last night. They take water samples from six different locations in two different buildings within the Reese houses. There are 13 buildings there. It's a big, huge development. It's right by the FDR. And it's, you know, it's uh, 1949 when it opened, so it's old. And so they do the testing in six locations, including three different kitchens. You know, they turn on the tap water and take the bottle of water with them. And, and that's on last, that's a Tuesday, August 30th. The next day they get the results. That's Wednesday, August 31st. So they now know that there are five of the six tests uh, uh, levels of arsenic that's above what's what's federally acceptable, the federal EPA's uh, limit for what is drinkable. The, there's five of the six apartments have essentially undrinkable water because they have too high a level of arsenic. The, the, the housing authority knows this, the vendor knows this, but the mayor doesn't know it. Uh, the mayor finds out about it, and I believe it probably around nine o'clock on Friday night, which would be about two and a half hours after I started calling, and then all and then all of a sudden, apparently he was he was told. So he has um, made a like recently just said he's like going to get to the bottom of this, and the federal monitor has now has gotten gotten involved and is now looking into what is you know what what's going on here, like who what when did they first become aware that this was an issue, and and the issue is really not about. The public so much it's about the tenants what are they telling the tenants and they didn't really tell the tenants anything even though they knew on wednesday that they had these results until really late on friday and the other part of it is it's they're telling tenants on a friday night just before the labor day weekend who's around i mean like a lot of people are out and anyway so i I've, I've talked to a number of tenants over there and they're all like most of them had no clue about this the, the, they didn't even know the mayor showed up so at any rate, this is a communication story, if you if you will, and uh, I'm not sure uh, where it's going. I do know that there are at least now the mayor says he's going to do a thorough investigation, and the federal monitor, who is independent enough that you can at least get a sense that what whatever they find, they're just going to play it as it lays. Um, and so that's what we're waiting for now. We're just waiting to see what they find. 
If I could, and just Greg's just in terms of the kind of outstanding questions, because you've laid it out really well of what you do know. Um, so I guess it's if there's testing in other complexes, um, now they say the water is gone. What is the issue there? Someone at City Hall yesterday, the mayor spokesman said, well, maybe it was false positives. I don't know if you understand how common it is to have a false positive. So if you want to go through some of the unanswered questions and also the mayor's lack of visibility and transparency in doing this. Yesterday, we had to follow him out of 1PP to ask him questions about it. He hasn't been taking these, quote unquote, off-topic questions um, directly about it. So if you want to talk a little bit about, about that, going more into the communication problem of it. And just very quickly, while he does show up on Friday night after Greg is asking questions, they put this out, update to his schedule. It's a holiday weekend. He had nothing on his schedule. At like 9.45, he's going to be there at 10.15. Consequently, there's no press there. The uh, scheduling update and the initial tweets about it don't mention arsenic at all. So they're just pictures of like, you know, uh, mayor, man of action, uh, you know, talking with people and with uniformed officials around and handing out water. And as you're noting, Katie, he, he's not taken questions about this, possibly because he doesn't know and is is trying to figure out some of the same questions as Greg ever since uh, this, this this came out. But if he doesn't know, it, it's a question of how there's the communications with the tenants and the public, and there's the communications within the administration. And it all seems very mysterious at this point, I think. Yeah, there's two points I would make about this. The first one is that there's multiple agencies involved in this. It's not just NYCHA. The Department of Health is involved in it. They have to be. They get involved immediately. They're the ones that made the recommendation to tell the tenants not to drink the water. The DEP has been involved in this since the beginning of August. So there's multiple city agencies that are well aware of this. I don't, I, I can't refute this because I don't know what the, what the actual, like the emails or the texts or whatever. I don't know what the communications are, but um, I do what, what the mayor is putting out is that he didn't know anything until late on Friday. And that's the question I would ask is why? I mean, I mean, this is a pretty serious thing. And as for the false positives, I would just say this. There are six different locations in this building that they found this stuff. Number one. Number two, they then retested them, all of them, and they came back the same way. So it is, you know, I, false positive is a wonderful explanation for just about anything. You don't like what you see. It's a false positive. I, I mean, the, the fact that they were concerned about this enough to do these tests raises another question. Why were they concerned about that? And at the end of the day, I, I mean, if the, what they seem to be doing is they seem to be doing these retests and then basically saying there's nothing to see here. That's what they seem to, that's the direction they seem to be going in. But there's one other aspect to that. I don't really know what happened. So they find out on Wednesday, there's, there's at least three apartments, right? There, they find arsenic in these and they, at that point, they haven't retested it, but they have a preliminary uh, test result showing that there's a level of arsenic that makes the water undrinkable in three separate apartments. What do they do about that? Do they tell the tenant? Do, and then do they flush the tenant's line so that when they retest it, there's, there's not going to be any arsenic? I don't know because they won't tell us. And they also uh, refuse to release the actual reports. The, re the, the information I just was relaying to you about the six apartments in the six locations is not something they told me. It's something that I had to get through sources. 
So at any rate, they, like well, the biggest problem with this whole thing is the lack of transparency. They just are not being forthcoming. And that is not a surprise because they have a history of doing this. And so I'm not sure where it's going to go. But uh, all I can say is that I'm not going away. Thank you. Well, Greg, I appreciate that. You know, I want to zoom out 30,000 feet because I feel like the future of American cities and, and sort of the, the next set of battles will be about water. I'm thinking about Baltimore. I'm thinking about Jackson, Mississippi. Obviously, Flint is going on like year four or something like that without fresh water. Um, I'm also thinking about certain things that the Bloomberg administration did. You know, I've been an advocate on this podcast about, you know, calling 311 and getting your water testing kit. But it seems as though the city and maybe this particular administration and also other cities don't really seem to care because right now it's in it's in public housing. It's poor people. It's people of color. What is it going to take for city leaders to take this seriously? Because clearly it's not just one building and one set of pipes. Like this is obviously an issue that can spread across the city faster than we're prepared to deal with. So what should the next steps look like for us? And how do we keep pressure on our electeds to make sure, A, the folks who need it get the resources they deserve right now, but B, I mean, it. how do we protect others? So it doesn't just become, this is what happens in public housing and we just shrug our shoulders and move on. Or this is just what happens in apartments and we shrug our shoulders and move on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is that, not to just keep it focused on public housing, but there's 320 developments across the city. Most of them were built in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, mm-hmm. and then to some degree in the 60s. So the infrastructure that you're talking about in these places, it's really old. And they're, they kind of like, because of the funding issues, they kind of like attack things. They only respond. They, there's, it's very little. And what's, what's really weird about Jacob Rees, it's like they got a ton of money put in there because I don't know if you remember this, but Jacob Rees was like underwater 10 years ago, this like it, coming up on Hurricane Sandy, they got flooded. Mm-hmm. And that's true, by the way, there's right below Jacob Rees is the walled houses. And then right below that is the Baruch houses. There's thousands of people living in those places. All of those, um, all, all three of those developments to differing degrees got flooded by Hurricane Sandy. As a result, FEMA put literally three billions of three billion dollars into doing resiliency and changing the uh, some of this, the infrastructure in all three of those places. So, okay, so to, to your question, what what do you do about this? Well, part the, I think that the issue with water is infrastructure because there's no indication that. The source of the water, which is the Catskills, is a problem. That's not a problem, as far as I can tell. That no one's ever said that anyway. But the, it's the infrastructure. It's what it's when the water gets down here, and it's in these really old pipes that are subject to leak. And what's in the soil? I don't know what's in the soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's you know? There, there's a it's particularly along the waterfront. There is a history of manufacturing that's gone, but they that leaves soil behind. The Gowanus is the best example of that. Um, so, so anyway, so it's, it's the, you know, the, the sleep inducing term infrastructure, the, you know, creates narcolepsy in, in bureaucrats across America. You have a, a system where everybody knows this thing is really, really old and nobody really wants to attack it in a proactive way. It's always react. Greg, 
the feds put massive money into creating this public housing in a very different point in our national and local history. And then they basically withdrawn from that. And other cities have responded over time by like knocking down like these big super block type housing projects. New York has maintained theirs. The buildings are older. They cost more. All the places that flooded you just talked about are basically on the water. And that's a big part of why they flooded. And they're on the water because at that point, the waterfront was valueless because it was an industrial, we had an industrial waterfront and people didn't want to live right next to that. Now the waterfront is crazy expensive. You know, all those red brick buildings, the reason they're red bricks and you just go buy those and you know, oh, the projects is because the modern, the nice modernist buildings that went up at the same time were white brick, you know, because they, they, they really were, were built on the, the same principles. And this was this ambitious moment when the federal government thought it could create like decent housing for poor people to live stable lives and, and, and move out from it. The feds have basically abandoned this. You have many families who've lived there for generations. So I wonder if to some extent this administration in New York City in general deserves credit for trying to keep NYCHA up, this huge city of 400,000 people in the books, maybe 600,000 inside the city, or, or if they just need to be, as you've done, held to account for the problems they don't deal with uh, the short-term ones and these arsenic tests, the long-term ones with lead and mold and the roofs as these places continue to deteriorate. I mean, the, during the Bloomberg years, it was like nobody was paying any attention to, to public housing. The mayor certainly wasn't. I mean, he must, I think he had maybe three press conferences about public housing in his 12 years uh, and he also appointed a guy who was a Lehman Brothers uh, stock broker to run the thing who had no clue about public housing or housing in general. Uh, and so it, it, the, the issue of accountability and the issue of, uh, you know, having some eyes on this is absolutely crucial. Um, yes, this funding issue has been a problem, problem mostly since Reagan. That's when it really started. But they've they've put money in periodically. There, you know, the state of New York has put money in. the The feds, the, the the HUD funds have been kind of flat for a while. Like they they haven't gone down for a while. And so you got to work with what you got to work with. I mean, you can't just keep saying funding, funding, funding. Uh, so they they're given all this money, and at times they seem to really get it together, and they and they have succeeded in doing some of the things. The lead paint situation, for example, I am told, is much, much more under control than it was. Why? Because they were forced to confront it. They had to go in and actually do something about it. I, I guess what I mean is that. And, without, and that was the federal monitor, right? That the, the, the was brought in during the de Blasio years. Yes. That forced some of that. Right. And that, well, after a U.S. attorney got involved. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, it, so in other words, yes. So, People are some people are not crazy about the federal monitor. Uh, my take on it is, you just remove the federal monitor, and you got nobody looking at this. Like the city comptroller can, you know, if they choose to, look at uh, NYCHA uh, behavior. They that just doesn't really happen on a regular basis. So you really need to have somebody who's constantly on them. That's really what it is. If you're not constantly on them, like this arsenic thing. I mean, 
I, my read of it is that they had no intention of telling anybody about this. It was just going to go through. They were going to get the bet. They got the, they got their uh, not not great test results. They retested. They got the same not great test results. Then they keep testing until they get the right result, and then they don't have to tell anybody. So if you don't have people watching, you'll never know what's actually going on. And just to close here, as I've been tracking this and working with you a little on this, on your reporting, like, I think the two and a half big mysteries here are why these city agencies and departments decided to test for heavy metals like arsenic in the first place. And like this starts with there are all these reports of cloudy waters. So they do bacteria tests. Those come back negative. The water's clear again. And then right after that, they decide to do this additional testing. Um, and then why the, the administration has seemed to proceed on the assumption if they keep doing tests, they'll eventually get back to negative results, which is in fact where we're at, at least at the moment. And now they're suggesting, as we've talked about, that those earlier ones might have been false positives. Um, you're a reporter, not a uh, speculator, but maybe you can just uh, tick off what the big unanswered questions here are, assuming that subsequent tests continue to be negative that need to get answered in this uh, supposedly transparent investigation by the administration of the administration. Yeah, I mean, I, I the the unanswered the biggest unanswered question is like like what was what was going on in it that led up to the finding of the um, in the six locations. What was happening before that? That's what I'm mostly interested in because I want to know what kind of discussions were taking place, why they decided to look at lead, lead or um, arsenic or mercury, which is the, the three big ones that they look for. And then all of a sudden, they get when they get this thing, then how do they handle it? You know, like, how does that play out? And then the idea that the mayor is completely out of the, what appears to be, I think it's true, that a mayor appears to be completely out of the loop until the last possible minute. And that is the reason why I think they had no intention of telling anybody, including the tenants. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm mostly uh, interested in at this point. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Um, more reporting to come, and I'm sure uh, we'll be continuing this conversation. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'll try not to ruin anybody else's weekend. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so Greg. much, Greg. We really appreciate it. F-A-Q. Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. We're now part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are also a proud member of the Brick House Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists, online at thebrick.house. A special thank you to our guest, Greg Smith, and thanks as always to Adam Kamara, who mixed and edited this episode. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into this thing. I swear it's like that Mark Twain line. If I ever get my shit together, these intros will become shorter. Is that a Mark? Is um, that a Mark? Okay, let's do okay, my let's best. Just jump in.